so I was thinking about this the other day. Um, do you guys think that Love Shack is a good song? Like the B-52s? Is that a good song? I actually don't know that song. What? Yeah. <laughs> oh. I feel very called out as a music theorist right now. Well, this cold open might just not work. <laughs> Thanks for stopping by the podcast today. Today, we've got a special interview with Aubrey Lehman. Aubrey, how's it going? It's going well, thanks. So what are we doing? What are we doing today, Seth? You kind of you got this together. Tell us, tell us what we're doing today. Uh, today, we're chatting with Aubrey Lehman about agency topics and just kind of some other semiotic narrative land stuff. Aubrey, uh, would you like to tell us the research and scholarship that you've been interested in recently? Yeah. So basically, I'm working on my dissertation right now, and my work looks at what happens when listeners personally identify with virtual musical agents. And what I mean by that is human-like entities within the music that are perceived to act or express emotion with some kind of intentionality. So I'm arguing that this identification or lack thereof plays a crucial role in the subjectivity of musical interpretation. Uh, In music theory, the subjectivity has traditionally been treated as either a kind of peripheral nuance outside of what can be seen as the definitive, you know, compositional structure of a work. Or um, on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who see it as just completely unchecked idiosyncrasy that we have no hope of engaging since every single person's going to hear the music differently. So what I am trying to do in my work is to navigate between these two extremes by introducing this concept that I'm calling empathic identification. It's empathic because you're it involves projecting yourself into the music's shoes, so to speak, mm-hmm. if you think of, you know, being in another's shoes and you know, with empathy. Mm-hmm. And this has really fascinating repercussions for understanding when and how listeners engage with virtual musical agency at different levels. Um, so like individual gestures, a single melody, the entire piece as an agent. Um, and I hope that in future, uh, in future work, uh, we'll, it'll kind of enable music theorists to engage with the subjectivity of agency and musical interpretation, broadly speaking, more critically, and even potentially better understand how to engage with particular audiences in a concert setting or any other kind of um, just setting where we're actually engaging with real listeners. I want to jump in real quick. So that was a great explanation. And I just want to say I, out of The four of us, I'm confident that I'm the least familiar with narrative anything um, because I get all of my narrative knowledge from Seth or Adam. And so then I was watching your presentation and I had to like rewatch it, rewatch it, break it down, break it down because it's all very outside of my wheelhouse. But what you just said was a great explanation to it. But I do kind of want to be voice of the audience for just a second. Um, Sure. Can one of you guys give me like a kindergarten explanation of what agency in music is. Cause we're going to be using that term a lot. And that's a very like narrative term that if you've never done narrative, anything like that may be a foreign concept to you of agency in music as like a theory, like vocabulary term. 
Honestly, I think the easiest way to think about agency is thinking about it in the human context. So we're all kind of agents or experience ourselves as agents in the real world. When you have Mm -hmm. some kind of desire or intentional action or expression, you think about, um, I have decided I'm going to the store now. I am Mm -hmm. deciding to play this piece of music. I'm deciding to express my anger at this person in a particular Mm -hmm. way. And, and so basically agency is all about this kind of intentional action or expression of emotion. Now, there's a whole existential question or, you know, that we could get into as to whether humans actually have agency. Are we mm-hmm. deluding ourselves? I mean, that's a whole kettle right. fish. But generally speaking, what we're looking at is our perception of ourselves and our perception mm-hmm. of music. So you can get a similar thing from listening to music. Like, a really kind of easy example, I think, to grasp is thinking about a melody. Um, mm-hmm. It's very common for people to hear, especially non-musicians, to hear a melody as a kind of single agent. It's it's a kind of human-like entity that's expressing some kind of emotion or mm-hmm. sounds like it's moving in a particular way, like it's running mm-hmm. or skipping or uh, is kind of resting, you know, all kinds of different things. And when we ascribe that kind of movement, these gestures in music with intentionality, Mm -hmm. that's when agency arises. So I guess to kind of summarize all of that into kindergarten explanation (laughs) level, agency is just all about acting or expressing with intentionality. And we assign that to music as listeners and theorists and all that stuff. And so when you do like a narrative analysis, you're assigning something agency and then you kind of build a narrative from there. And you're looking at how you're also relating to it as the listener identifying with it. Correct right. me if I'm wrong on any of that. Yeah, well, <laughs> it's it's tricky because people do different things. So sometimes mm-hmm. that's correct and sometimes it's not. It just depends on who yeah, you are. Yeah, it's a really broad kind it of is. concept and thing people do, yeah. And honestly, a lot of the literature on narrative doesn't really talk about agency specifically. It's kind gotcha. of it's kind of under the surface. You know, there are theorists who do agency and there are theorists who do narrative and they don't Mm. always intersect, but they're highly interconnected uh, concepts, I believe. Okay, cool. Yeah, see, that's, I couldn't have told you that. It's, so that makes a lot of sense though, that they, you could separate them or you could combine them, so. How did you get into agency? Because I got introduced through... I think an article that Seth Monahan had done and he had come up because there was his Mahler book that was big on agency. Was it the Action and Agency Revisited article? I believe so, I yeah. I love that one. Yeah, honestly, I got started doing narrative. Um, so in undergrad in particular, I was, uh, my whole honors thesis was about narrativity and I came to Northwestern thinking and expecting that's what I'm going to do. And I did some of that, but I I just kind of felt like what I was interested in was broader than that. I was still very interested Mm -hmm. in narrative, but exactly. I ran into that Action and Agency Revisited article by Seth Monaghan, and it was very interesting to me. But honestly, it wasn't really until I started looking at this broader picture. I didn't think I was interested in agency until maybe a year or two ago. And then it just kind of snuck up on me where I realized, 
what I'm really interested in are these identifications that we have with music. And sometimes mm -hmm. that's a part of a narrative and sometimes it's not. Sometimes I just hear this entire piece as one thing mm -hmm. or I have a very sporadic, uh, a very sporadic kind of perception of the music. I'm not listening constantly. I'm not hearing everything that's going on. I don't have a coherent narrative in my head. And so what I was really concerned with was how do I explain my actual real world listening experiences and other people's listening experiences for that matter. And so that's when I started looking at agency because it's this broad concept that includes narrativity, but isn't limited to that. And so I think it does a much better job of, I think narrative is great, but I think for my purposes, looking broader at how people interact with music, generally speaking, it was a more helpful concept to kind of be more all encompassing. Yeah, cool. definitely. Some of the stuff that I've done has tried to look at like, why the music does what it does. And I felt like that was sort of like an agency thing, but agency within the music of like, why do these notes go in the directions that they do? Is that sort of the same agency as, as like, I guess you're talking about more on like a, on a listener's perspective, what they receive from the music, but like, is there overlap between those two? Sorry, the sense? two, can you, can you rephrase those two points again? Like yeah. which, what, what's being compared here? Sorry. Um, You're good. Like, I guess the way that I was using and at least thinking about agency was sort of trying to understand why the music is doing what it's doing. And the way that you've talked about agency is like why people receive certain impressions or emotions. Uh, and like, is that the same agency? What's the, what's the overlap between sort of like that? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. So the way that I see it is the first is a compositional perspective, which is uh -huh. super fascinating and really important to look at. But I am doing something a little bit different in my own work where mm -hmm. um, I'm not as concerned with why a composer, I mean, I, I guess there, there are kind of two different ways still, I think, possibly to read your first kind of location of agency, which is, it could be from a composer's perspective. Why is the composer making the music do what it's doing? Right. Um, but then there's also the option of saying, why in the music itself, quote unquote, is this happening? You know, right. regardless yeah. of any intent, what are we taking from it? And that's kind of an interesting blurred line between the composer and the audience, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so what I'm doing is I'm basing my work off of Robert Hatton's uh, recent book on uh, a theory of virtual agency for Western art mm -hmm. music. I'm looking over here because it's right next to me. I know <laughs> that book. Yeah, it's fantastic. <laughs> and... I what I only he got to does, like page 70, but I know it. <laughs> I only needed page 70, so. Well, and I mean, it's got a purple cover and purple is my favorite color mm. and Northwestern's colors. So it was just nice. a match made in heaven, you know. <laughs> um, basically, he does a lot of the compositional side of things. He's very right. much yeah, looking yeah. at how do these things fit together in the context of the piece itself. Mm -hmm. And I kind of take that as a diving board into looking at what else do we as listeners bring to the music? We're hearing gotcha. these compositional relationships and like agencies. Like a lot of what I, I'm looking at is something can be agential, you know, kind of having this um, agency feeling or value mm -hmm. from a compositional perspective. But if 
I am not identifying with it or I am identifying with it, I can actually affect the sort of what I'm calling like the the flavor of Mm -hmm. the agency. It can kind of gain Mm. some kind of more human-like agency from my identification with it because I'm kind of merging with the music Mm -hmm. or it can kind of lose agency in a sense just in my personal experience but it's always compositionally speaking agential gotcha okay yeah well and so to me that's really interesting because in my thesis i was saying that the narrative level would be the biggest like compositional level of analysis that all of the maybe more formal analysis that you might do underneath that will eventually lead you to the narrative but I like that you're saying that this um, idea of subjectivity or agency might be beyond that because it could ultimately, how you're viewing it could change that. And that was a point that in your presentation at SMT you brought up was that if I identify with this specific line, then that becomes the narrative because I can follow that. And I would go through Almain's like, Okay, what's the transgression? What's the opposition? What are these two things coming into conflict with each other? But that, like you've pointed out today, that sometimes you listen to music and you may not necessarily hear or identify with something. And so you wouldn't have that narrative. Yeah, and I think too, what's really interesting about the agency kind of stuff encompassing narrative is that it allows almost more freedom in a sense because... Well, so Hatton talks a lot about identifying with the protagonist, that you identify with the protagonist that's going through the narrative. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's interesting because, I mean, if you think about watching a movie, so (laughs) the example that uh, I like to use, which, you know, is a lovely pop culture example, but everyone should know it, is the movie Frozen. So (laughs) (laughs) you watch this, I watch this movie, I will speak from my own experience, and (laughs) I, I go in and out of identifying with different characters. Sometimes I'm identifying with Elsa. Sometimes I'm identifying with Anna. Sometimes I'm identifying with someone else entirely. And it's not that there's now no protagonist, but my identifications are very fluid and change based on what's going on, based on how I'm feeling in the moment. When I watch the movie at different times of my life, I identify yeah. with different characters in different ways. And so I think this idea that, you know, there is this narrative. I'm kind of challenging that a little bit because I think you can get different narratives based on what you're bringing to the table, if that makes sense. Yeah, and so that, I'm sorry, did somebody else have a question? I was, I was just gonna kind of do a clarifying question. Um, kind of like you just said with that movie, it's, it may not change. The movie example is like, it doesn't mean there's not still a protagonist or an antagonist or anything. And so with a musical narrative, it may not necessarily change the like roles that you've assigned within that narrative, but it does change your perception of them. Right. right? So, so like in a movie, you could look at the movie itself, quote unquote, mm-hmm. and you could say, this is the protagonist because this character is operating more and in a particular relationship with the other characters. Mm-hmm. You could do the same thing in music. And that's a lot of what Hatton's doing. He's saying, right. Here's the musical protagonist. This it has mm-hmm. the same type of function and relationship to the surrounding musical materials. Right. But that doesn't mean, I mean, I know tons of people who identify more with the sidekicks in movies than the protagonist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so that kind of adds this additional layer 
of experience that affects how you perceive the narrative. It may be the same right. narrative, but you're experiencing it differently. Yeah, very interesting. One of the things in your paper, you'll have to remind me the name. It was someone who did interviews with people about what they identified with in the music. Yeah, Alf Gabrielson. Right. Some of those some of those interviews that you referenced talked about the parts of the music or sometimes the entire piece of music um, that they identified with. Would it be possible to feel as if you yourself were the protagonist of the music? Uh, what do you mean by that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. This whole, thing, this whole thing is so fuzzy. I feel very out of my <laughs> element here. Um, well, but like there was, there was the one person that you mentioned in the, in the paper that said that they were the music that they had become like the entire scope of the piece, right? And so if they were feeling so thoroughly both inhabited and represented by the music, do you think that you could describe them as almost being the protagonist of the music, at least in their own perception? Short answer is yes. The longer answer is I think you might be conflating two different levels of agency in that question. Okay. okay, yeah. So basically, and also this was something that Seth brought up earlier that I feel like is worth clarifying. Honestly, all of this terminology is super ridiculous and people <laughs> use it in different ways. So just to be super clear about at least how I'm using the terms to you know, just help people, subjectivity can be both the idea that people hear and interpret music very differently and subjectivity Mm -hmm. can also be a category of agency okay so subjectivity as a category of agency is like this complex human mind it encompasses the entire work so you can identify with any level of agency you can identify with the piece as a whole which are is Mm -hmm. what some of the people in those gabrielson examples are doing you can also identify with an an actor in a narrative. So you can hear this kind of progression of oppositional. So basically the narrative is defined as these oppositional agents, um, Mm -hmm. or that's what drives the narrative. And so you can identify with the protagonist. Again, obviously that's a fuzzy concept. What is the protagonist? But Mm -hmm. you identify with some kind of protagonist in this oppositional kind of narrative. You Mm -hmm. can also identify with a single kind of virtual human agent. Um, is another level that Hatton describes, where that's just maybe like a melody being a character. It's not really in opposition to anything, but it does have this human-like action or expression, you know, this kind of quality about it. And then you can also, I argue, identify with what Hatton calls actance, which is action or expression, but it's not perceived to be intentional. So it's like Mm -hmm. if you trip on the sidewalk and fall down, an example mm-hmm. I can personally relate to many times. <laughs> um, but if you if you trip and fall, the action of falling, you're participating in an action, but it's not intentional. Mm-hmm. Right. Same with somebody who's just naturally calm. Feeling calm isn't agency. It's just how they naturally are. But if someone was naturally anxious and then had this kind of calm expression... Um, that would be experienced more as an agency. And you think about people with depression as well. There's a lot about, you know, this is outside of people's control. It's, it's a, an abnormal brain function um, or mm-hmm. chemicals going in the wrong place in your brain. So in a sense too, that's not really an, like the experience of depression is not an agency because it's out of your control. It's not intentional. Mm-hmm. 
So there are all kinds of very interesting ways to get into that. But basically, sorry, Adam, coming back to your question, if you're identifying with the protagonist, you would be identifying at kind of the narrative level. If you're identifying with the piece as a whole, you'd be identifying at the subjectivity level. Uh Aha, okay. So you can identify at any of those levels, absolutely. I think that's that's one of my main arguments, and I think that's what's Mm -hmm. so fascinating about this, is the listener can basically merge with the music and enter in at pretty much any anywhere mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay gotcha in your presentation i forget which level it's at but one of the levels included things like lyrics but if something's in german and i don't speak german um could you maybe speak on how that would affect possible agency and subjectivity yeah that's a great question basically I think this actually kind of gets into what you were discussing towards the beginning where you're, you know, you're looking at all these different types of listeners, the real listener, the ideal listener, the historical listener, and all of those kind of listeners have different cultural backgrounds. They have different levels of knowledge that they're bringing to the table. And Mm -hmm. same with someone who speaks the language or someone who doesn't speak the language when listening to a song with lyrics, it will affect what agency you're likely to take from it for sure. But it may not affect it as much as you think. Something I've been kind of curious about and I wanna do more research on at some point is that it seems to me, just from some kind of very basic and brief analysis I've done, that oftentimes composers, songwriters, whoever, will have cues that are instrumental, have cues that are in different locations, like different um, parameters of the music. So Mm -hmm. volume, tempo, pitch, et cetera, key, that all kind of communicate, they come together to communicate a similar agency. And so maybe if you're missing the language translation part, you still get the basic sense of what's happening and what kind of agency there is even without that, from the surrounding musical parameters. And again, Mm -hmm. it just would depend on the song. It depends on the listener, what their cultural background is. Because also I'm talking about people in a very Western enculturated context. Mm -hmm. Um, People in in other cultures may not hear agency or may hear it in different ways. But on on that part, as far as different cultures, I think that that's something that is exciting about a lot of this semiotic research and narrative that there are definitely things that um, we've talked about on recent podcasts that is very geared towards the, you went to music undergrad and you have some background and training and here's what you're supposed to hear. But there is a side of it that I think opens it up to more than, okay, it's Mozart. You should be hearing ones and fives and maybe an augmented six for flavor in there. Um, that, okay, if I went and listened to pieces from, you know, uh, South Indonesia, what, like, I'm not going to be able to have cultural values associated with that that would be meaningful. I might have something that is unintentional, but, you know, I would still experience the music and experience some sort of agency with that because I would still hear the music kind of like Adam was getting at earlier that, there are musical components that you would hear and you would, you might hear something in there that you start to identify with and, you know, possibly create a narrative, but possibly not create a narrative. It may be too foreign to you. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, something that I kind of pushed back against is this idea that there is a correct way of hearing any piece of music. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally kind of, that that's a, kind of a personal pet peeve of mine. So you could say that my mm-hmm. whole dissertation is just me addressing my pet peeve. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's a good idea. I'll write that down later. Right? later when I do mine. <laughs> it gives you a lot of motivation to write it, you know? Because yeah. you're just like, everyone needs to listen to me. Um, <laughs> I never thought about it that way. That actually is incredibly motivating. Right? I got a lot of problems with you people, and now you're going to have to hear about it. <laughs> but, you know, and I, and I definitely understand. I mean, music theory's whole purpose is to understand, well, maybe this is arguable, but I kind of see music theory's overarching purpose as trying to understand why music does what it does, just at a very basic level. Mm -hmm. And so if there's subjectivity in the sense of people hearing different things from music, well, then how are we supposed to say what music is doing? Because if it's doing Mm -hmm. something different for every person, then we're out of a job, basically, because Mm -hmm. we can't say anything about it. And so I get why there's been this this history of trying to pin down meaning. But, right, coming back to this question of, you know, this, this, so I'm more interested in the real listener, people who may or may not have cultural background knowledge coming to something. And, and I think, too, I care about this particularly because we all started there. You know, mm-hmm. I think we forget how we came to love any particular genre of music. I mean, the first time I heard pictures at an exhibition, it's a very cliche example, but it's also a true example. You know, I heard this in a concert hall and I was just absolutely blown away. I was a kid. I didn't know, you know, who Ravel was, how it related to his other transcriptions, who Mussorgsky was. I mean, I didn't know any of this. I didn't know what chords were being played. I didn't know about, you know, thematic transformation. But the music was incredibly meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. And so that is what I feel like I want to look at is, and I'm not saying that, you know, obviously having knowledge about music can enhance your appreciation in some cases or can change mm-hmm. your appreciation in some cases. And I think that's also val- valuable. And I don't want to, you know, hate on musicians or music theorists by any mean. I am one <laughs> uh, by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also really want to get back to this idea of you can still find meaning in music and it may just be different from what someone else is finding. But I'm interested in that listener perspective of how how is music meaningful to the people who are listening to it? Yeah. And um, I guess another thing that I, I don't think I clarified as far as narrative goes, so that my interest for my thesis was helping clarify some of Almain's thoughts in his book, A Theory of uh, Musical Narrative, which is a wonderful book and it's a great place to start as far as narrative and a general understanding of topics and other things go. But of course, if you're getting into that rabbit hole, you know, go check out Hatton's early work in the 1990s and um, Kofi Agawu, I believe is how you say it, but if I'm mispronouncing his name, um, but his books playing with signs are great as well. Anyways, with narrative, the concept of you should have two things happening. You should have something that is this protagonist, and then you should have the antagonist. But instead of using those terms, he uses overarching hierarchy and transgression so that you have 
you know, here's my stability and something's going to come against that. And he maps it out with romance, tragedy, comedy, and irony, and those two things interacting in four different ways. But the problem is there was never a true clarification of here's why a romance is a romance because it gets into the problem that Aubrey has brought up of, well, what if somebody doesn't hear that as the, like, I don't really identify with the overarching hierarchy. It may be that, but I don't identify with that. I may identify with the transgression more. And so that something that somebody maps out as a romance, somebody else might be hearing as a tragedy. Um, We did it in much more simple terms, which was, we were watching the World Series and it was like, well, why do I want the Cubs to win? Wouldn't I still be upset if, you know, the Indians win? Like still the same outcome happens, but I'm upset because I liked one team versus the other. And so trying mm. to navigate how do you identify with one is, I think, a very um, interesting idea. This may be too simple of a question. I don't know. But so Aubrey, from the stuff you're working with, subjectivity and all that, like when you look at a piece through that lens, what's sort of the end presentation going to look like? Like, are you still constructing a narrative? Are you more identifying the ways that you as the listener and the analyst are identifying with it? Are you identifying different agencies? Like, what are you really kind of laying out when you look at something through this lens in terms of an analysis? This is basically an entire chapter in my dissertation is doing an Mm. analysis, looking at how do we actually use this? What does Mm -hmm. this actually mean? Um, And Basically, I think I, I think of it as a kind of supplemental approach to Hatton. So still, you can look at compositional agencies, map this out just like a normal agential analysis would be or a normal narrative analysis. Mm-hmm. But then there's this additional layer of saying it's not just about what's in the music. It's about me as a listener as well. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm really pushing for is more openness and this is already I say I'm pushing for it there have been people before me who have pushed for this I'm just kind of joining the train this idea that we as analysts aren't outside the music Mm -hmm. we are still human beings who are relating to it in a particular way and so being very conscious and just open about what that connection is I mean I look at Mm -hmm. so Hatton has a chapter in his book about uh, Chopin's fourth ballade. And he, there's this very interesting footnote where he says, I identify, or not identify, um, I interpret this part differently than um, Charles Rosen and uh, Michael Klein. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I was and, trying to, I was like, I, I swear I have read <laughs> at least two articles about that ballade. And I was like, oh, okay, those are the names I know. Yeah. And so, and it's funny because that's where my ears kind of perked up. I was like, oh, say more Mm -hmm. about that. Why are there these different interpretations? And it's just Mm. a little footnote. And I get Mm -hmm. why, because that's not his purpose in the book. I'm not faulting him for that by any means. But what I'm trying to add to analysis, again, it's not a whole new form of analysis. It's a supplemental Mm -hmm. layer. Um, Mm -hmm. But I'm adding this kind of recognition that particular interpretations are arising you know, in part because of our personal experiences and identifications with music. So, you know, 
there, a lot of my analysis has my own experiences in it. I say, well, I hear it this way. And that feels mm-hmm. very weird. You know, mm-hmm. trained as a music yeah. theorist, don't say I. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. So it still feels weird. You know, I'm about a year into this project now and I still, uh, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's hard. It's hard to do. Um, yeah. But I think it's important. And, and so just saying I normally or in this context, I hear this in this way and hence I am interpreting this piece in this way and here's a possible interpretation of the piece as a whole Mm -hmm. and sometimes I'm in a different mood or something else is going on in my life and I interpret it a different way and I think that's the beauty of music is that we can bring different things to the table and take different things out of it and I think it also has implications for performance I mean they're Mm. you know kissing Kissin will perform, you know, this ballad differently than, you know, Murray Pariah would or, or anyone else would. Definitely. And, and so it's not that one of those interpretations is wrong or right. It's just that they're bringing something different to the table. So long mm-hmm. story short, to answer your question, I see this as allowing us to kind of bring into the picture more interpretations with a more kind of open-armed approach and mm-hmm. being more, more personal about our analyses. And you know, presenting that, not just yeah. using Absolutely. it, but being upfront about it and telling the reader or the listener. Yes. That's very cool. The thing about performance is really interesting because when I was an undergrad, I loved theory and I hated performing. <laughs> And so like, like, or at least interpreting, I, I, I think part of, I didn't mind so much on piano, but when I did voice stuff, I don't think I liked having to like emote. The voice feels so much more intimate than just like playing piano, at least to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so like there might've just been some sort of emo- emotional blockade, you know, in my own life that was stopping me. But like, I think that I don't, I, I wouldn't have thought of interpretation as like a theory idea but i loved theory so like it's interesting that you make that connection because like i think if somebody had been able to show me that there was a theoretical application to performance and interpretation like that would have completely changed how i thought about music and performing like that when you mentioned that when i heard you mention that in your paper i was like i like it doesn't connect to me at all like i never thought that those two things would overlap and like maybe i would have been maybe i would have been less resistant to the idea of performance or interpretation if i had if i if someone had shown me that it could be could be a, a theoretical application Honestly, it's very funny to me because if you just substitute, if you just swap your word choices here and say wherever you said, you know, theory, say performance, Mm -hmm. and wherever you say performance, say theory, you are the prototypical music theory freshman, sophomore student. Yeah, 100%. It tends to be the opposite where people love performing and want to do that as musicians, but don't see the applicability of theory. So that's Mm -hmm. really interesting Mm -hmm. to me that you actually are coming from at it from the opposite side. But honestly, an anecdote I love to tell is I was at a masterclass um, that this, uh, if anyone doesn't know, this famous pianist, uh, Leon Fleischer was giving. Um, He's just a legend. He's phenomenal. Mm -hmm. And he asked the student, the student played this piece, I forget what it was. And he came on stage and said, so do you have a story about this piece? Do you have a story for it? And uh, the student said, yeah. And there were kind of chuckles in the audience, you know, and 
because Fleischer said, oh, well, what's your story? And I forget what the story was, but it was some very basic idea. He's like, oh, well, this mm-hmm. happens, and then this happens, and mm-hmm. then this other thing. And again, there are kind of chuckles through the musician audience, because this is, again, very kind of almost faux pas. Like, you don't, yeah. maybe you do this behind the scenes, but this isn't something that you do. It feels unprofessional. Mm-hmm. And Fleischer said, but what about this part here? What happens in the story here? And what about this note? How does that fit into your story? And he actually took it to the extreme. And Hmm. his point was that you need a complete, full, holistic uh, understanding and interpretation of a piece for it to really stick together. Everything has to make sense in the context of everything else. So it's like creating a narrative, a full narrative, like you're creating a theory of the piece, which you need in order to perform Mm -hmm. it well. And I just thought that just has stuck with me. I mean, it's probably been 10 years or something since I was at that masterclass, but it just really stuck with me. I definitely have heard those same ideas before from like performance, uh, like studio professors who aren't teaching theory, but they're teaching you how to perform. And I'm just thinking about my professor in undergrad and it was a lot of, well, like what, like you're playing the notes, but what's the point of what you're playing? Mm. Where's it going? And that idea of where's it going? It's basically, you could say like, is there agency? Like it's, it's just another way to ask that same question or look at it through that lens. Yeah, it's understanding all of the different parts of the music in relation to one another and and having mm-hmm. a personal connection to it. Because if you don't mm-hmm. have a personal connection to the music you're playing, it just falls flat. Yeah. So it really is building a theory of the music. Mm-hmm. And that I think, at least for me, that came more naturally with vocal music because there is a text to it. Mm-hmm. All the yeah. vocal music that I sang explicitly had a story to it or behind it. Yeah. Um, but like the piano music, no, not so much. I actually, mm-hmm. back in high school, I lost my voice briefly because I was sick with some cold or something and I couldn't mm-hmm. speak really at all for a few days. And honestly, it was the most connected I ever felt to my piano music. Um, I was a pianist. Mm-hmm. And, and I think because it became my voice, it became an actual mode of expression, which is what it's supposed to be. Um, mm-hmm. So that's just <laughs> what you made me think of. Interesting. Um, so with, with a lot of what you were talking about as far as agency and different ways as for the performer to think about the music, um, something that I was wondering because I was going down a rabbit hole of kind of cognition um, articles and stuff the, this week because I had a thought about just how do we think about all of the different listeners on a spectrum and has there somebody that's talked about, okay, here's what the historical listener, how they're hearing it and how they would kind of rank things as far as, you know, narrative and other things, you know, where are they identifying these things? Um, Which I, I think in some ways is connected to what you've talked about as far as agency and, um, subjectivity. Anyways, it eventually led me to Larson's uh, musical forces. And so I was, I was just thinking about when I started analyzing and performing music, a lot of where I ended up, even when I look at like more modern compositions for bands that, that I do have a linear train of thought. And part of that probably comes from I I went through the Clendenning um, Complete Musician um, Guide. And so that there's a lot of Shankarian undertones to that. And so that probably has guided that a lot. But a part of Shankarian analysis is omission. 
that you're picking and choosing what is and what is not important. Whereas Mm -hmm. I think a theory like Larson's might be more encompassing because you could still say there's directionality. There is a musical force being applied to this, but not necessarily that you have the same inherent goal as everybody. So have you ever thought about, and I don't know how much you know about Larson. I think Adam has uh, knows some as well, but I was wondering kind of what the two of you thought about using the combination of that idea of maybe gravity or musical force in um, connection to the agency. Yeah. So, well, first of all, this is part of, or, you know, this is a big part of what I loved Adam about your thesis about your dissertation because you're taking yes congrats on (laughs) that completion huge deal um but i love this idea of taking musical forces and thinking about them in terms of post-tonal music which is not something that a lot of people have done Mm -hmm. and honestly the musical forces are what i see as kind of the building blocks for agency Um, I definitely think they're related. Well, they are specifically related. A lot of people, Hatton talks about musical forces as well. Um, Steve Larson. Yeah. Cause I got, I got to Larson from Hatton. Right. Yeah. And then, and then Hatton, like it led me back to the Hatton. Anyway, it was a big mess. (laughs) Basically the way I see the forces and Bailey Shea, Matthew Bailey Shea is another great one to read on, um, Larson's forces and agency. Basically, if you give in to gravity, so that's like the tripping example that I, you know, used (laughs) earlier, that's not an example of agency because that's not intentional. You're kind of giving in to a force that's controlling you. Whereas, you know, musical motion that's rising up is kind of fighting against this imposed sense of gravity that we have. And so in that sense, that gives us agency. So basically there are these forces and how the music kind of interacts with those forces, whether it uh goes alongside them and and kind of supports them and gives into them or whether it rejects them and strives against them is what gives us the sense of agency or non-agency which Hatton calls actancy adam i don't know if you have anything to add to that no that's pretty good (laughs) (laughs) i I do like the idea of you could then like that could affect how you relate to the music this idea of like if you're the one giving in in the moment or you're the one fighting a force working against you that could be a way to explain why you relate to a certain part of the music or Mm. your relationship to those forces those like outside forces working on you as well could connect this whole thing (laughs) yeah i think there is room for you could write a paper or a presentation about, you know, a more linear style of thinking in a historical perspective of if you were at this performance and you had listened to the previous 15 years of Mozart concertos that when you listen to the new one, you you have this sense of expectations and you have those cultural values with you, but that, you know, maybe the modern listener is hearing different musical forces at play. And so you could juxtapose those two things and you could discuss here, here's what a modern day listener might hear opposed to the historical listener. But I don't know that when we get presentations or papers or articles that people are necessarily clarifying who they're writing for, or when they tell you this is how to hear it, is that I'm supposed to hear that as the modern day listener or 
is that the 1803 guy should have heard it this way. (laughs) Yeah. And honestly, I think that's kind of, that kind of points to the both beauty and terror (laughs) of this kind of work is because the more, first of all, you have to be very clear about what audience you are talking about. Because Mm -hmm. the beauty is that every audience hears it differently. And the more we understand about our individual audiences, the more we can predict and explain is maybe a better word, why they're hearing what they're hearing and what they're hearing. But the terror of it is that we have to know our audience, you know, we have to you know, how do you know the historical listener? And obviously there, I'm not saying it's impossible to know. There are a lot of people, um, you know, Vasily Biros at Northwestern does a lot of this work. He he probably has the most historical ears for Beethoven that exist in the modern day. Um, I would probably say it is the terror as well, because that feels very presumptive. It feels very almost controlling to say, this is what this audience is hearing. There's always going to be differences even within an audience but Mm -hmm. the more you narrow it down to a particular group of people the more you can make at least some generalizations about what's likely to be heard and why Mm -hmm. right i don't i don't think there's anything reason to be afraid of saying i hear something in a different way my problem with the presentations that i've heard along the semiotic line or the narrative analysis lines is that they end with, well, and that's my opinion. They may say it in more academic language, but there is, you know, kind of a, okay, great for you, but I I don't know how that helps me. I don't know what to take away from this analysis. And so in my thesis, I was using Lairdahl's tunnel pitch space and getting into okay, if we are assuming that you hear this tonality that you could make justifications for, I would hear it in this key and then the B section might move here and one has a stronger preference. You would have a stronger preference for one over the other. And then I could make tonal justifications for why you would have that preference. But even at the end of that analysis where I could justify I followed this narrative archetype because the overarching hierarchy was a little less stable, but the transgression, which came in second, was more stable. And I like subjectivity and, or not subjectivity, but I like stability. And so that then at the end, when we eventually end up with that, the transgression has one out leading us to this narrative. But I think an interesting thing would be to go back and say, you know, the historical listener would have heard this or somebody else could have heard this and then discussing the differences there because I think there's this misunderstanding sometimes that this discussion of narrativity or semiotics or other things are here to tear down our old ways of, okay, we don't need to analyze five chords anymore or understand chromatic mediants, but... It's not, it's just allowing ourselves this different interpretation and expanding our ability to talk about music outside of Germany between 1600 and 1850. Yeah, honestly. 1600, that's pretty generous. I mean, <laughs> I, Bach was around, so I had, I was going to say 1700, and then I was like, well, no, a lot of people still like Bach, so. 
I guess I should hey, go back Bach to is, 1600. Bach is pretty great. I, I can't hate on Bach. Yeah, I like really? Bach. Do you do you have any specific instrumentation that would give you the oh, preference? Definitely keyboard because that's my instrument. Um, I mean, I love the cello stuff too, cause just because I love cello. Um, but I just have to share, this is a little bit of an aside, but I think it's worth it. Uh, the best Bach joke I ever heard. <laughs> oh boy. Um, <laughs> Buckle up, everybody. Yeah, yeah, it's about to get about to get real um basically uh i was in a class and, and this was at the university of south carolina and um our our professor we were in an 18th century counterpoint class we were basically we were writing fugues mm-hmm. and the teacher said you know oh well we need to look at fugues by different composers and not just bach um bach 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 it's just like a chicken coop and <laughs> i i was actually in the class with my sister um, and we turned and looked at each other and then we turned back to the front of the class and the entire rest of the class, we were just trying so hard not to lose our minds laughing <laughs> because, and it's such a terrible joke, but just the way that he said it and just, and he said it just straight tone and then just kept teaching, <laughs> nothing happened. And, and that's the thing. It's a terrible joke. I don't know why it was so funny to me at the time, but it was just hysterical. So Anyways, that is, <laughs> if you need a good Bach joke, I, I got you. See, I'm so just glad. You have glad. to and just pretend that it wasn't Just pretend that it's exactly, yeah. that's what made yeah. it. <laughs> See, I think that was my problem because when I was trying to teach third graders last year about like, hey guys, here's some Bach stuff. This is why this is cool. Even found one of the color-coded fugues on youtube so that they could follow like oh that's mm. where that's gonna enter and i was like this is how you say his name like the chicken and they were just like i don't i don't get it i are you sure you don't <laughs> well what you need to do is find their fugues online that are of like lady gaga's bad romance like as oh. a fugue mm. and it's the best thing i've ever heard in my life and i played it honestly though i don't even know if that works anymore because i loved it and there were multiple pop songs yeah. in fugue form. I was very much a fan. I thought it was fantastic. I played it for my students and they came in and I was like, guys, do you recognize this piece? Do you know what this theme is? And they just stared at me and I was like, it's Lady Gaga. And then they still just stared at me. Like they knew, they just did not care. So take it. They're like, I would have thought that was cool. Thank you. you. Yeah. Yeah. Have you guys tried to, I mean, it sounds like you're doing more teaching than I than I am lately. But have you got have you guys tried to do the the like the what the interval like the things that you memorize for intervals? What do you mean? Like what are they called? The uh, interval class factors? No, not those. No, that's that. No, no, that's way that's way beyond what I'm talking about. No, I'm talking about like I, green sleeves for minor third. What is that? What, <laughs> we, what do we call that? You, you know see that. Called. Uh, just, just memory memorizing your those? intervals. Yeah. But, but, you know, coding them in like a uh, perfect yeah, fourth. Like, like here comes the bride is, yeah. is the perfect fourth. Like that sort of deal. Have you tried to do that with any elementary school kids lately? Uh, no. N- no, because I don't, I don't think it's well, helpful. I did, it, I, I did it with a high schooler the other day because we were talking about intervals and I was trying to like work on intervals with him. Turns out none of those songs are like contemporary anymore. I mean, they weren't contemporary mm-hmm. to me. But like major six for the NBC chimes, what high schooler is going to know the NBC chimes? But you see, I didn't even, no, I didn't even know that. And that was the example we had in undergrad. And yeah, like, me too. I didn't know that that's what that was. Yeah. Sorry. I was just going to say that my sophomores 
uh, did not know the song I Will Survive by Gloria Gaynor. And uh-huh. that what really is- old. Oh, yeah. come on, Adam. You- no, no, no. I know the song. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay, no, no, no. Okay. I know the song. <laughs> I was trying to think, <laughs> do you use that for an interval? That's what I was trying to think. Of. Oh, no, no, no. It was oh, just, just generally they didn't know it. I was going to say, yeah, if okay. you don't know that song, then I no, feel no, I know. for not no, knowing know. the 80s song at the beginning of this podcast. Right. <laughs> so it's come full circle. No, no, I know the song. Uh, but like, I don't know, what, what was the other one I was trying to tell? Like, I always think of the Superman theme for Major Sevens, and he had no idea. He'd never heard it before. And I was like, well, that makes like, sense. You're like 14. Of course, right. you don't know. Yeah. That's the thing. How would they know these songs? Right. But, it's still- but I hadn't tried yeah. to do that with anybody in a while. And I just realized like how out of touch all of the references that I know are. They were out of touch when I learned them, but I just learned them. Well, so like, I don't know. We got to come up with a better batch. The one example that I always gave that the my students like loved because to them it was like a giant throwback was mm-hmm. um, Usher for the minor six. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Do, 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 do. They yeah. were they lost their minds because they were like, "Oh, that song's ancient!" Like, <laughs> <laughs> but they knew it. They did still know it, so that I guess was a win. Yeah, I had a percussion kid who was not doing well in the class, but when I played the minor six, he was like, "Oh, isn't that Usher's?" Yeah, and I was like, "Is it?" And then, oh, and it's the best reference. It's the best interval reference. Well, it okay. Is. But the- <laughs> actually, so we had my oral skills class uh, had to do a final presentation where they had to convert any song they wanted, like a pop song into solfege. Mm-hmm. And one yeah. of my oh. one of my student groups did that song. Yeah. By Usher. And so they're <laughs> like, you know, singing the the bass line with with that, you know, delay and everything. And it was hysterical. <laughs> That's pretty That's good. That's a good one to do that, too. It really was. It worked great. They got really into it. Yeah, the my only issue with it was I kept telling them, okay, guys, whatever song it is, the first interval has to be the one that you're comparing it. And with yeah, it's like okay, it's a perfect fifth first, guys. But like, and then yeah, it scoots but, up that half. But I mean, yeah, he knew what his minor six were, so I was like, you, you do you, bud. <laughs> <laughs> whatever works. Yeah, yeah. We, I was gonna say, Seth, you asked a question, and we got off track. I'm going to oh, pull yeah. it back for just a sec. Um, I was going to say, Did he? no regrets on the interval discussion, but no, I just <laughs> wanted to kind of follow up to what Seth said, basically, which was that he was saying that at the end of some narrative presentations, it just kind of ends oh, yeah. with a, eh, that was kind of a conclusion. It wasn't really a conclusion. It, eh. So I was just curious, like, Aubrey, like, how would you, through your lens, feel like you could kind of maybe not present it more concretely per se but you could kind of like add more to it than just kind of leaving it just sort of eh, that's one option but it's really probably not even like the best option you know leaving it not quite so open-ended that it loses some meaning because I feel yeah. like you could definitely bring some more substance to it with the subjectivity discussion yeah so I would say two things to that I think the first is that I don't have problems with saying at the end this is my opinion but I think the difference that I would personally kind of strive for is to not apologize for it mm. um I think it tends to come across as very well, you know, kind of throw it, you know, brush it under the Mm -hmm. rug and, you know, Mm -hmm. pretend like I didn't say that and it didn't happen. And I think that this is really valuable to talk about our own personal experiences. So it's not even that I would necessarily change anything about Mm -hmm. what people are saying, but just say, yeah, 
you know, straight up. I'm just going to say this is what I am hearing. Try not to let that take away. Yeah, like Usher, exactly. And then you just play that song, you drop the mic, and you walk out of the conference. Um, I actually did see somebody do that once. Did they really? No, of course not. (laughs) Well, there are But soon, next next conference I go to, uh, I'll make it happen. There are pop music conferences that could happen. But, um, did you hear about the Taylor Swift conference? Yes, I did. My friend sent that to me and said, you could get your Tay-Tay on. And I was like, thanks. <laughs> um, I haven't followed up on that one. I sent it to them. Nice. I mean, isn't there only like three days or something before that deadline? I don't know. Oh, we've already missed it then. That was yeah, I didn't pay attention. Oops. I, so, I Quick didn't plug have for any... the most recent two albums. They're so good. Anyway. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I didn't have any Taylor Swift research just offhand to send them. Sorry. I know. I didn't either. I was sad, but you could always attend. So yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. anyways, that's the first thing I would say is don't apologize. Uh, the second thing I would say is that I don't think we should stop there by saying this is my interpretation. I think that's a really valuable starting place that we all have to do because our own experiences are what we know. We can't Mm -hmm. project into other people's minds entirely. Like, you know, it's my experience is the best I've got for talking Mm -hmm. about this. And, but using that, I think the key is to use our own experiences, our own interpretations of music to present a broader theory. So I kind of view my theory as sort of a meta theory. I mean, there's nothing inherently valuable in my personal experiences with the Chopin Ballade. There is mm-hmm. nothing. No one, you know, right. no one should read this just because they want to know what I hear in it. doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. But I try to use my experiences as, I think I used this kind of metaphor earlier, like this like diving board to discussing how agency works, period. Like how, Mm -hmm. how do we engage with music? Here's a particular example of me engaging with this music, but it can tell us something about how we engage with music more broadly and how we can understand other people's engagements that may be different, but are relationally like analogically Mm -hmm. similar, if that makes sense. Yeah. Meta theory. That's a great term for it. So going off of Libby's question, mine would be for those that maybe are more of a traditional, I'm going to keep analyzing the way that I've been told to, whether it's an undergraduate student or even early in graduate studies, you know, you can still get stuck in a very, okay, this is how either my committee members would like to analyze a piece or something. And so you're just kind of in that realm still. If they were at a conference like the South Central one that I went to and that you were a part of, what kind of questions could they ask that you think kind of aren't being asked? Because either, you know, they're at a place where Livy is of, okay, you told me it was your opinion, but I don't know how to follow up with this Mm -hmm. because I'm not going to tell you that your opinion's wrong. Like, it's your opinion. So what kind of questions could somebody answer or could they ask that maybe are or aren't being asked? Hmm. That's an interesting question in itself (laughs) that you could (laughs) ask and did. Um, Yeah, I think that. hmm. So that maybe this helps while you're thinking. I think one realm would be people like me that are kind of down a rabbit hole anyways know a bunch of the terms and as I think you me and Adam would agree 
those terms are all in one big pot and there's not a concrete definition of half of them. And so you can just kind of throw terms at each other and see what sticks and like, Hey, I know this, you know that. And so, and then everybody in the room is confused about what anybody's talking about. Um, yeah. Yeah. But you know, like, would you like people to offer their opinions more on, Hey, I've heard this song and maybe I identified more with it. It, like, is that something that you would hope for and more discussion and less like finger pointing and you were wrong? That's secretly a minor four chord. <laughs> I mean, I never like being told I'm wrong. So, um, you know, obviously I'd So that's people. what this is about. This is just to, to avoid that. It's, well, yeah, my dissertation <laughs> is about addressing my pet peeve and my whole dissertation is also to avoid being told I'm wrong. Um, no, yeah, what but a good honestly, idea. Again, God, another again. great suggestion. <laughs> Miss yeah. Al. I was so scared to say anything definitive in my, in my thesis. Like, like just say something factually accurate about the piece of music. I was just nervous to do that because somebody might correct me. I should just make it all up. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I mean, so honestly, I'm very open to any questions anybody wants to ask. I think there is value in asking questions because that allows you to engage with the material. If you're asking a question, that means you've thought about it in some way. Mm -hmm. So honestly, I, you know, I don't, you know, have any problems with questions people ask me. Sometimes people ask me something like, why should we care about your opinion? You know, why should we care about how you hear this piece? And I'm like, you shouldn't. <laughs> That's not the point. <laughs> no, don't listen to me. But again, I think, I think there is value in asking questions and having deeper discussions about, again, this kind of meta level of even maybe how does this relate to topics? How does this relate to schema theory? How does this relate to mm -hmm. other things? I think those are some of the most interesting questions I get um, that really encourage the deepest thinking and that I geek out on because I think, again, ultimately at the end of the day, as music theorists, we are just trying to understand why music does what it does. And there are so mm -hmm. many pieces to that puzzle. And so I think if we can bring more of those pieces together in conversation with one another, then we're doing something really great. I think the topics one is really interesting. An interesting like relation, topic. Huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, no, just There's I don't. There's my own personal bad joke of the day in addition <laughs> to the Bach one. Um, no, I mean I'm I'm not super read up on on topics as much as I should be. I'd like to be more. Um, it's on the to do list. Uh, but based on like what what Seth and I have talked about r relating to topics, is it sounds like topics are you have to get like so so much like evidence and proof and like non-subjectivity to actually call something a topic that it almost like doesn't it's not that it feels pointless but like you're narrowing something down so specifically i don't know it just doesn't seem like you can feel you like use it in a lot of different ways i mean i'm, I'm kind of overgeneralizing here but i i think like the idea of adding subjectivity to topics would just open open that up to well, and that so better to me, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. As as I've been um, reading through the Oxford Handbook on Topic Theory, um, shout out to Mirka, who's up at Northwestern. So Woo, shout out to Northwestern. <laughs> <laughs> um, but like in the early parts of the book, the first two main articles gets into topics are a 
very historical style of analysis, at Mm -hmm. least with how they've gone about it so far. And so, you know, maybe this is answered later on, but there is a question that I have of, because I've encouraged Adam to, you know, discuss um, some of the hip hop, rap and R&B things that he's interested in, but through that topical lens because there's not necessarily this huge here's what the modern day topics are but that would be more culturally relevant to us just as a population i think so before i you know what i wanted to do my thesis originally was to talk about like trying to see if you could talk about like hip-hop sampling and find topics in it or whatever like a more like a lighter newer version of of topics was like what are some narrative things going on in like beat making of hip-hop because it's all so interconnected and referential that it seems like you could just sort of like build like a a universe out of those shared ideas um but that was going to be a big mess so maybe that maybe that's my dissertation i don't know yet well you should check out janet bourne's work she does a lot of the modern day topics with uh film in particular Mm. like film music yeah is born spelled like B, like like Jason Bourne, nice. <laughs> like B O U R N E. Okay. No, I'll have to look her up this week when I'm supposed to be teaching. You know, well, not <laughs> not teaching, teaching. So unless anybody has any final things, I think now would be. Oh, a... I, oh, I I just had one more question. Oh. Like okay. totally not totally off topic, mostly off topic. Aubrey, is there anything else? that you are just interested in and like doing research like if once you're done with this or if you weren't doing this is there anything like secondary that you're also interested in that you would want to do just out of curiosity yeah honestly i don't have a great answer for that but what it Mm -hmm. makes me think of is another kind of avenue of this research that I would love to explore in the future, which Mm -hmm. is to look more at the practical applications of this. So I've mentioned, you know, we talked about how if you understand different audiences, then you can understand better what kinds of agency they might be hearing. And ultimately, if we can do that, that would be really valuable information for arts administration kind of organizations to know about, um, to be able to better engage with audiences, better encourage identification um, with music and have these really meaningful experiences. So honestly, I'm very interested in pursuing the practical side of this. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. So without further ado, Aubrey, thank you so much for, you know, making the time and talking to us. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm sure Adam and Libby did as well. Um, great. how can people get in touch with you? Is there a social media that you're on? Anything email you want to plug? Best? Yeah. So my email is just Aubrey Lehman, 2021 at u.northwestern.edu. Um, probably the easiest way, honestly, is to just Google my name and Northwestern. Um, and then you'll find my email address and kind of a short bio and all that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Always happy to talk to people uh, if you have any questions. And thank you all. Thank you, Seth, for reaching out to me. Thank you, Adam, for sending me your thesis. And Libby, it was just wonderful to meet you. You too. <laughs> um, but thank you all so much for having me on. This was really fun and I really enjoyed it. So thank you. Yeah, And Thanks. if Thanks you guys are... If you guys are interested in Aubrey's presentation, it is still up mm. on the 
South Central Society for Music Theory website. You just go to the 2021 conference and you can find it there. Um, are there any other articles or any other things that you might have available if people were interested in your research? That's pretty much the main thing right now. So I'm kind of in the dissertation writing mode. Um, mm. And that is the biggest thing I'm focusing on at the moment. <laughs> yeah, so stay postponed, guys. Yeah, yeah. More <laughs> to come. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you all so much. Thank you. And thank you everyone for listening. So please like, share, subscribe, and we'll see you guys next time. Bye. try not to be judgy about you know music but not you know music I personally just don't like and was it's okay to- we're all music theorists this is a safe well, space for gatekeeping I, I don't know I, no 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 no, I, no, no. Well, <laughs>